1: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show 185. I'm your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in today's show... There is a little talk about Larry and his narrations, but I'll get to straight away. Then we have a fantastic promo by Beware the Hairy Mango. Do you know who that is? It is fiction crawler Matt Smith. Then we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis, looking back at genre history. Then we dive into the second part of Ken School's Grail Diving in Shrangrilla with the World's Last Mime, part two. Then we have Morgan Sellett as Everything... And finally, How to Run a Con by Michael Swanick. So that is show 185. I do hope you'll stick around. So... Vote for Larry. This is it. Listen, Larry, as you know, well, he's won it actually two years running there. He came joint, I think, with Spy robinson first year, but he won this year's Sofa Note for Best Narrator. Now, Neil Gaiman is offering a part in his new American Gods narration. There's, there's an audio book getting produced by Neil Gaiman and there's a competition going and I, forgot, I think I might I actually forgot to mention this last week so you have to vote come over to the front of the, va- the, the website there's a link there or go on the forums, there's a link there vote for Larry, you can vote for every, t- every day I think you can vote for him just to get him into that kind of top bracket let's see if we can do it because he would be fantastic in that story so if you want to vote for Larry Santoro to get onto the new Neil Gaiman audiobook wouldn't that be just amazing Come over and do that, please. Pop over the front of the website. Just vote, register and vote however you do it. We've all done it. It Who's kind of been on the forums and everything like that? But it has to have a certain amount of votes, and I think he's nowhere near at the moment. But please help that fella out. Next up, we have a fine promo by that crazy old fool there. Beware the hairy mango, Matthew Sanborn Smith.
2: Hello, you magnificent rascals. This is the everlicious Matthew Sanborn Smith asking, is your life missing the vitamins, minerals, and not to mention the essential roughage that a daily dose of mango would supply? Are you prepared to receive mango into your life, but have no idea from which direction it might be coming? Well, my friends, grab the nearest set of safety rails, grit your teeth, and brace yourself for mucho mango mayo. It's 31 brand new episodes of somebody's favorite podcast, Beware the Hairy Mango, all crammed uncomfortably into the merry, merry month of May. By the end of it all, you may have overdosed on its sweet and stringy flesh. You may never want to smell another piece of tropical produce again, but for those first couple of weeks, it will be pure heaven, I assure you. So join me and bloat yourself silly on far too much of a great thing. We'll get sick together and reminisce about The Hangover for years to come. Dude, I listened to so much that one time, podcast was like... Coming out of my nose. Good times. That's mucho mango mayo at the home of the hirsute fruit, Beware the bewarethairymango.com. Let the mango in and see how long you're able to keep the mango from coming back out.
1: What do you think? What do you, you know what I mean? You just gotta go over there to Matt. The month of May, all goodness taken off. Matt, you're a star. Big hugs there. So, we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis looking back at genre history. Ames,
3: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. You may recall that a long time ago, back in Oral Delights show number 37, I offered something of a whirlwind tour of some of the great science fiction investigators of literature... In honor of what was then the new X-Files film, I talked about some of the precursors to Agents Fox Mulder and Dana Scully in the X-Files, who came from some of the great early texts of science fiction. I admitted at the time that my list wasn't complete, but I was hitting some of the high points. And in case you missed that show, some of the early science fiction investigators I mentioned included C. Auguste Dupin, created by Edgar Allan Poe, Dr. Martin Hesalius, created by J. Sheridan Fanu. Flaxman Lowe, created by e. and H. Heron, Dr. John Silence, created by Algernon Blackwood, Thomas Karnacki Ghostfinder, created by William Hope Hodgson, Professor George Edward Challenger, created by Arthur Conan Doyle, Jules de Grandin, created by Seabury Quinn, and a number of different investigators created by H.P. Lovecraft, such as Professor William Dyer from At the Mountains of Madness, Dr. Elihu Whipple from The Shund House, Dr. Marinus Binknell Willett in The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, and others. Well, today I'd like to talk about another early science fiction investigator and the fascinating author who created him. Let's start with the author himself, Edward Harold Begbie was an English author and journalist who lived from 1871 until 1929. If you can think about it, he probably wrote it. He published almost 50 books, and among his works were plays, poetry, children's books, comedy, political satire, religious tracts you name it. He even ghostwrote the memoir of Ernest Shackleton, the great polar explorer. He didn't actually start out to be a writer. He started out to be a farmer, but that really didn't take. And he moved to London and joined the Daily Chronicle and then the Globe as a journalist. If you look at his works as a whole, you can see that he pretty much followed his interests into a number of different areas, and thus he wrote in a number of different formats. Two areas in particular seemed to be of great importance to him. The first was politics. He wrote patriotic verses and propaganda, but over time his perspective changed, In 1902 and 1903, he wrote, co-wrote really, with authors J. Stafford-Ransom and M.H. Temple, two books that were parodies of Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. Um, They were called Clara in Blunderland and Lost in Blunderland. These were actually political satires dealing with the author's frustration at the British administration, the political leadership and specifically with the Boer War. Although he supported Great Britain's efforts in World War I, and even traveled to the United States on behalf of his paper to cover the topic of the war, he also publicly defended pacifists and conscientious objectors and those who were against the war. And as he grew older, he grew increasingly concerned about domestic policy in his country. Perhaps his most famous work, in fact, he wrote under pseudonym, the pseudonym of Gentleman with a Duster, and that book came out in 1921, and it was called The Mirrors of Downing Street, Some Political Reflections. And basically, this was an expose of a number of issues that he found to be troubling and problematic in contemporary policy. Another area about which he was quite serious was religion. He was broad church Anglican, and he was involved with several charitable works and reform works. Um, he was a part of the Oxford Group, which later turned into Moral Rearmament and also the Salvation Army, and his book, The Little That is Good, which was published in 1917, was about charitable work with London's poor. Interestingly enough, even though he personally was rather anti-Catholic, in his 1914 book, The Lady Next Door, which was set in Ireland and, for that matter, quite sympathetic to Irish home rule— he actually portrayed Catholicism in quite a positive light. Now here's where it gets particularly interesting. Like many people of his day, he was very interested in spiritualism and the supernatural. And this is particularly of note if you consider where paranormal books and young adult speculative fiction is going today. He was quite interested in the concept of angels. And in fact, he wrote a book called On the Side of the Angels in 1915 that compiled a number of allegedly true accounts of angels. Now, I wouldn't call this a scholarly work by any stretch of the imagination uh, because these accounts usually were not attributed to any particular person or they were um, told secondhand. They were very difficult to track down, pin down, verify in any meaningful kind of way. So, So in this sense, it was a popular work, not one making a serious scientific argument for the existence of angels. It was meant for people who already believed, as opposed to those who wanted some sort of hard, cold facts to persuade them. It's interesting that the so-called angels of Mons, the sort of legendary story that a group of angels supposedly protected members of the British Army in the Battle of Mons at the beginning of World War One, which most historians would agree today was really a mashup of political propaganda-slash-mass uh, hysteria-slash-urban legend-slash-completely-fictional account taken directly from popular literature at the time. And in fact, a number of skeptical contemporaries would have claimed the same. But Begbie completely believed in this and defended the idea that in fact that actually happened. In other words, he defended the notion that the angels were real against Naysayers and critics and skeptics. I mention this because it shows a certain openness, a certain desire for something more beyond what can easily be seen. And in fact, Begbie believed that modern science was really in his corner, that the more scientists appreciated that there was more to matter that met the eye, This suggested that simple materialism, that we are simply matter in motion, wasn't that easy to hold on to. In other words, he saw modern science as opening a door for imaginative, theoretical, supernatural explanations as scientific understanding of our universe grew in complexity. In the same way that Arthur Conan Doyle's interest in spiritualism informed some of his Professor Challenger fiction, Begbie's interest in the supernatural, in a world beyond that we can simply see with our eyes, informed his speculative fiction. Yes, folks, I have finally come to the topic, and that is his unique science fiction investigator, a man he called Andrew Latter. Begbie wrote a series of stories that focused on Andrew Ladder, all of which were published in Alfred Harmsworth's London magazine in 1904. Those stories were The Murder in an Omnibus in June 1904, The Affair of the Duke of Nottingham, July 1904, The Eye at the Drawn Blind, August 1904, The Charge Against Lord William Grace, September 1904, The Missing Air, October 1904, and The Flying Blindness, in November 1904. In 2002, these works were combined into The Amazing Dreams of Andrew Ladder and published by Ashtree Press. So, what's so cool about Andrew Ladder? Well, like Sherlock Holmes before him, he... Investigated and solved mysterious crimes and consulted for Scotland Yard. But Ladder went about his investigations in a very interesting way. He becomes aware of a separate dreamland that's related to our universe, and he finds out that he can actually go back and forth between our world and the dreamland through, yes, his dreams. He also discovers that while he is in the dreamland, he can, in fact, get clues about some of the things that are happening in our world. His descriptions of negotiating this dreamland really anticipate a very old idea that later in popular culture would be called astral projection, the idea that we have a physical body and that we have an astral body, and the astral body is capable of traveling in other dimensions or planes outside of, independent of, the physical body for an OBE or out-of-body experience. This would become uh, something that's, you know, stock and trade in science fiction and certainly a part of later science fiction investigators' vocabulary. Um, For example, it came up multiple times in the X-Files. I would also point out that Andrew Ladder's Dreamland and the way he finds clues within it to mysteries in our world. In fact, also anticipates the current uh, U.S. science fiction series Fringe and the way it uses the alternate universe because some of the main characters actually travel back and forth between our universe and the alternate universe. And they go to the alternate universe usually to find clues about things that seem uh, inexplicable here in our world, and vice versa. And it's clear that only certain people can travel in between these worlds. Here is one of the first descriptions of Andrew Ladder's dreams from The Murder in an Omnibus. "'My first sensation was one of floating, not in space, but in time. It was without the sense of space altogether.' and entirely without the sense of corporeality. I felt myself to be discarnate consciousness floating between the future and the past. This feeling impressed itself very curiously upon my mind and tempts me strongly now to speculations on what is called the fourth dimension in time. To an infinite being, can there be a past or a future, a thing done and a thing to come? I think this show's pretty clearly, the connection between the Andrew Ladder mysteries and science fiction. I definitely recommend the stories. The fact that they're written in first person really lends an immediacy to each of the tales and allows us to get inside Andrew Ladder's head. And it really is an interesting, unusual twist on the paranormal detective or science fiction investigator, and quite early, at 1904. Many of Begby's works are available on Project Gutenberg. The Andrew Ladder stories are not at this time, but they are, as I said, compiled into one volume available from Ashtree Press. I will leave you with one more quote from The Murder in an Omnibus by Harold Begby. Success! It is five o'clock, and I have just come out of the vividest and most extraordinary dream that ever I had in all my life. The fire is out. It is bitterly cold, but I dare not let a moment pass without writing down the story of my dream. I am trembling with excitement, and can scarcely hold the pen. It may all come to nothing. It may be no more than the ordinary trickery of the brain, which Van Rondestein claims to be the result of slovenly and disordered thinking. But I must write it down, and in a few hours' time I will go down and see Beaton at Scotland Yard. I believe in my dream. It can't have been a delusion." I hope you've enjoyed our look back at genre history and I look forward to talking to you again soon.
1: Amy just kind of digs up these people just kind of (laughs) I've never heard of before and that's just truly tremendous. Amy, thank you so much. So we have, we come into... Ken Scholes, part two of his Grail Diving in Shangri-La with the World's Last Mime. This is fantastic. It is narrated by Josh Roseman, as you know. Josh is just a superb narrator, I think, and just put, bless him, when he first came, he, you know, he had this big narration to I don't forget which one it was. And told it, that's enough big, and Just give us a little and then send another big, over, then another big. <laughs> Josh, I honestly do appreciate it. Thank you so much. So the Starship's over, and... No, it's not them. i will oh, go the oral delights. God, man, how weird. It's the heat. He is very proud to resent. Grail diving in Trangrilla with the world's last mime. Part two by Ken Shules. Previously
4: on Starship Sofa, Reverend Sparkle Jones is on a mission to find the Grail and use its power to stop the aliens who have invaded Earth. Joined by former pro wrestler Little Elvis Sanchez, Sister Mika the Singing Nun, Auntie Anne, proprietor of Auntie Anne's Jellies and Jams, 15-year-old Timmy Galahad, and the last Mime LaFoy, Reverend Jones leads his band across half the United States. After Little Elvis dies, saving the group from an Octo battle tank, Reverend Jones and the others realize that it's going to be a lot tougher to find the Grail. Grim and determined, they set off toward Shangri-La rhymes with gorilla, in search of an artifact that can, they hope, save all humankind. And now, the conclusion. They crossed Kansas and Missouri without incident, and finding the mighty Mississippi's bridges blown or barricaded, they crossed on an antique ferry somewhere between St. Louis and Memphis. The last mime Lafoire fired it up with practiced confidence and piloted them across while doing a drunken sailor imitation. Reverend Sparkle Jones kept his eyes closed the entire time, white-knuckling the railing. No one asked, and he said nothing. They restocked canned food, women's shoes, and ammunition at a Bimart big big-box-everything store on the outskirts of Paducah. The Klan survivalists opened fire on them as they tried to leave the store. They abandoned their shopping carts and ducked back into the gloom, hiding behind empty cashier stations, racks of candy bars, and end caps full of products that had recently become irrelevant. We're a watch in the back, too! the recently appointed Grand Wizard shouted. So why don't you make it easy on yourselves and send out them three women you got? And what happens if we do? Reverend Sparkle shouted, yelping as Sister Mika kicked him in the ankle. Why, we'll let y'all go, naturally. The world suddenly found itself in a shortage of white power. No, what happens to us women if we come out? Reverend Sparkle said. Low voices discussed this. Uh, mister? Sparkle Jones interrupted. Not Mr. Reverend. Reverend. More discussion. We don't play that way, Reverend. You'll be free to go as well. Yet more discussion as the conservative elements of the movement expressed dissenting views. As to your women folk, we'll take good care of them. They'll live like royalty in our new Jerusalem. They'll do their part to rebuild our pure race on this earth once my brethren and I have eradicated these unholy extraterrestrial hostiles. The Grand Wizard paused, giving his words time to set in. So what do you think, Reverend, the easy way or the hard way? I am afraid, Reverend Sparkle said, that we women folk, as you so quaintly put it, have both a previous engagement and a higher calling. He loaded a fresh clip into his pistol. So we will decline your kind invitation. He punctuated his sentence with three rapid shots that shattered glass, spanged off asphalt, and thudded into a sparky. The vibrating turtle ride positioned near the door. Get 'em, boys! The Grand Wizard said. The last mime LaFoy dropped the first survivalist to cross the threshold. Auntie Anne took out the second, as well as a gum and rubber snake dispenser near the turtle. Everything paused for nearly a full minute. They heard the sound of boxes falling and metal clanging from the back of the store. The Reverend and Sister Mika repositioned themselves, pistols drawn, and watched the shadows. Timmy Galahad loaded a thirty-eight revolver he'd recently liberated from the store's glass display case. Sparkle had told him to start small, work his way up. Apart from everyone dying, he found the New World Order simultaneously liberating and invigorating, in ways no video game could ever touch. A rack of deeply discounted women's plus-size clothing jumped and fell, accompanied by the sound of cursing. The cursing turned to screams as Sparkle put a few rounds in the bumbling redneck. Sister Mika, her eyes adjusting to the darkness, took care of his skulking partner where he crouched in the lingerie. I don't have time for this, the Grand Wizard yelled. Then don't do it! Sparkle Jones shouted back. It'll go easier for you if you don't. We're on a job for the Lord Most High. History, at this point, becomes a bit murky. We know that the Grand Wizard Toby and his clan-pure-white-hood-survivalist confederacy had the stated intent of taking the grail-seeker women for their own. Because of this, speculation abounds as to why what happened next happened at all. Most believe that more conservative elements within the short-lived movement, taking issue with the notion of an ordained cross-dressing minister consorting with mimes and nuns, exercised their democratic right to dissent. Others believe it was simply a sad, stupid mistake, perpetrated as per usual by sad, stupid white men between the ages of sixteen and sixty. Regardless, at that moment, something small, egg-shaped, and metal landed inside the store and rolled under a candy display, and the last mime LaFoy surprised them all by uttering his first words of the journey, yea, his first words of the past twenty-seven years. Grenade! They scrambled. Hot metal, smoke, melted chocolate, fire, a deafening boom, followed by a crystalline ringing. They looked around at each other, waiting for their hearing to return, trying to figure out what had happened and what seemed out of place. Sister Mika noticed first that Auntie Anne was missing. The last mime also noticed, and Duck walked back to the cashier stations, rifle raised. Sparkle Jones followed. Outside, they heard arguing. The hell you say, Jim Bob. They elected me fair and square and if you don't like it, you get the fuck out. I'm not going in. Bill and Joe and Ike and Larry and Paul went in and they ain't come back out. You threw it and I say you're going in. When Jim Bob did poke his head around the corner of the doorway, face outlined by light from a hot Kentucky sun, it made the last mimes work that much easier. He didn't stop there. As if, Somehow, speaking, had opened up some blocked red river between his ears, he continued his duck walk to the door and poured around the corner with vengeful grace. The others gathered around Auntie Anne, holding her hand, wiping the blood out of her eyes and off her mouth, while she whimpered, cried, and asked where her legs were. Pop. A scream. The thud of something heavy falling. Pop. Another scream. Boom. A high-caliber rifle going off pop. Auntie Anne's lips quivered. Come here, she said to Timmy Galahad. Timmy Galahad wept. He stepped forward, knelt, and let her clutch his hand. Listen, she coughed, spraying blood. Do not despair on that dread day in your hour of need. She licked her lips, fighting for breath. Timmy waited. She said nothing. Yes, he finally asked. Auntie Anne fixed her eyes on his. If you rub it, she said in a hoarse whisper, he will come. Then, as the double entendre took root in her fading mind, she blushed furiously. And died, and after the last mime Foy returned, they buried Auntie Ann of Auntie Ann's jams and jellies in a frozen food cabinet of the Paducah By Mart Big Box Everything store, marking the place with stuffed animals and jars of raspberry preserves that bore her smiling likeness on the labels. When they finished, they went outside, and Reverend Sparkle Jones hiked up his dress. These ones don't come back, Timmy Galahad told him. Sparkle Jones nodded. I know that, but I'm willing to make an exception. This time, even Sister Mika joined in. Hobgoblins howled to the north of them when they fired up their bikes and turned toward Atlanta. They hold up in a farmhouse, having grief, spam, and canned peaches for supper. I'm not doing this any more, Timmy Galahad said, wiping his bloodshot eyes and drinking the syrup out of the can. Spam's better fried, but I don't think a fire is a good idea. Sparkle Jones said, his eyes were red too. Timmy tossed his empty can over the back of the couch. Not the food, the quest. I'm not doing it any more. He stood up, hefting the rifle. Tomorrow morning, I go my own way, son. The Reverend said, I know it's hard, but it's a callin'. It's your callin', and callins' are neither easy nor easy to cast aside. Timmy Galahad looked at the troop, the company, the band of grail-seekers. He opened his mouth to speak, then closed it and shook his head more to himself than anyone else. Sniffing, he wiped his nose with his sleeve and walked out of the house. Sister Mika stood up. I'll talk to him. Sparkle Jones nodded. He pulled the lever on the lounge and the footrest popped up. He lay back, watching the last mime wipe off his makeup for the night. Jones took off his wig and scratched his scalp. "'I know about you,' he said with a quiet voice. LeFoy looked up, a blank look on his face. "'I had my suspicions, of course,' he nodded to the M-16. "'You're awfully handy with that.' LeFoy shrugged and went back to scrubbing his face. "'You're not even really French, I'll bet,' the Reverend said, more to himself. He yawned and stretched. "'Special forces, I'd say.' Now the last mime looked up, his eyes narrow. Slowly he rolled up the sleeve of his black and white shirt, exposing his bicep and his tattoo of a cartoon frog wearing a sailor's cap and sporting an M-16. Over the top and underneath were the words the quick or the dead. Sparkle Jones saluted half-heartedly. I was army myself, severely hydrophobic, but all that wool in the summer was just sinful and I found the skirts rather unflattering. LaFoy nodded, spreading out his sleeping bag. I reckon, the reverend continued, that you know where all this goin'. going. Again, the last mime nodded. Good, Sparkle Jones said. That boy is the world's last hope. He chuckled and then repeated something he'd told the group not so long and yet forever ago. The name's a dead giveaway, so you keep him safe. For the third time, Lefroy nodded. And I'm glad you're not French. It pleases me. That said, Sparkle Jones slipped into sleep. Just until Atlanta, Timmy Galahad said in the morning. Then I'll head north and see what I can find. No one argued with him. They pressed on. Meanwhile, far above them, in metal compartments filled with foul-smelling yellow clouds, otherworldly minds ran upgrades on their invasion program, and the hobgoblins below twitched and jerked with sudden know-how pumped into their skullcaps from on high. Outside Atlanta, when they ventured onto a highway in search of another Bimart, a crack commando hobgoblin assault force opened up on them with weapons looted from the local National Guard armory and pillaged from fallen U.S. soldiers. Fortunately, they were terrible shots due to a lagging satellite signal. Still, what they lacked in quality they made up for in quantity— Bullets thudded into the ground, clipped Lafois's little French cap, shattered the headlight on Sister Mika's bike, and popped the left front tire of an abandoned SUV. They swerved away and opened their throttles, putting distance between them and the invaders. They skirted the city, stopping in the suburbs to the southeast. Now they've got guns, Sister Mika said. No shit, Timmy Galahad said. We're running out of time, Sparkle Jones added. They'll be driving soon. Timmy Galahad kicked a rock. Makes no sense to me. First, they come at us with nothing. Then tools, sticks, golf clubs, and those walking things. Now they're shooting guns. It's simply economic, the reverend said. Huh? We've killed dozens of them. That can't be cheap. Not economic like money. Economic like the thrift and management of resources. And I don't think we've killed any of them, really. I don't think the hobgoblins are our invaders. I think they're just puppets on electronic strings. Sparkle Jones paused, then continued. They're only putting forth the effort they need to put forth. They're using our own weapons against us. They're upgrading their technology when they need to, and I'll bet those giant walking things are recycled out of salvage wreckage. Pretty weird strategy after traversing vast reaches of space, Timmy Galahad said. The Reverend offered a grim smile. That's why we call them alien. So what now? Sister Mika asked. Reverend Sparkle Jones climbed into the sidecar of the Harley. We turned south. We're not far now. Sister Mika and the last Mime LaFoy climbed onto their bikes as well. Timmy Galahad stood alone. He kicked the ground again, watching the rocks and dust move. Then he looked up and stared into Sparkle Jones's eyes. I meant it. What I said yesterday. Fine, Sparkle said. We'll talk about it at dinner. Timmy Galahad kicked more dirt. No. I'm leaving. Now. For a moment, no one spoke. Sister Mika bit her lip, looked at the Reverend, and then back at Timmy. I know it's been a lot to handle, Timmy. Timmy snorted. A lot to handle? Tenth grade algebra's a lot to handle. This this is... He started to cry. Just as he did, another crack commando hobgoblin assault squad broke cover and opened fire. Get down! Sister Mika shouted, throwing herself at Timmy. The two of them went down hard and lay still. The last mime LeFoy dropped prone, his M16 popping. The Reverend climbed from the sidecar, tugging at his pistols. A ricochet clipped his arm, tearing the sleeve of his dress and leaving a long red gash. Blowing blonde hair from his face, he raised both colts and started squeezing rounds. Sister Mika kept Tommy pinned. Just stay put, she whispered. He struggled against her wanting into the fight, but she was strong and nearly dead weight. Finally, he gave in. He felt something warm and wet on his stomach. Sister? he asked. Her eyes were closed. They fluttered open. Timmy? Are you shot? She smiled a sweet smile. Just a little. The last mime ran silently after the last of the hobgoblins. The reverend ran screaming beside him. Timmy lay still. How much is just a little? I'll be fine. Really? She kissed his cheek. No, but listen to me. Yes? Be a good boy and find that grail for me. He opened his mouth to say no. To say fuck this. I've watched my friends and family and planet die and I'm done now. I'm going away. I'm going someplace where I can be a kid again. But instead he said, okay, I will. She said something. He couldn't quite understand. Remember those words. What? The song that was playing when I lost my... You know. He didn't know. Virginity, she said, chuckling. Timmy Galahad blushed. Your... I thought it wasn't that great. That's the night I decided to become a nun. Just don't forget down the road that you must travel. Forget what? Kyrie Lazen, she said. It means, Lord, have mercy. Then Sister Mika, the singing nun, died. Hobgoblins and Humvees chased them into Fort Lauderdale. Octo battle tanks closed in from the north and south in an attempt to cut them off. In the last day, their aim had improved exponentially. Bullets zipped and zinged past the speeding motorcycles as they raced towards the canal and the burned-out houses that lined the strip of waterfront. What are we looking for? Timmy Galahad yelled above the gunfire and roaring engines. You'll know it when you see it! And they did. It loomed above them. A massive, crystalline cathedral stretched high above the ruins, casting back bright sunlight. The bombs had spared none of its neighbors, but somehow it still stood. Is that it? Reverend Sparkle Jones twisted in his seat, fired a few rounds behind them. Yes, she's waiting for us there. Who's waiting? Sparkle Jones reloaded. The driveway, blinding white cobblestones beneath the gold archway, was coming up quickly to the left. Turn here. Timmy took the corner, the bike tipping as he did. The driveway forked one path leading to the cathedral and another to the burned-out remains of an equally massive parsonage. I saw her on TV once, the reverend said. She's a beauty. He pointed to the right fork, towards the remains of the parsonage. There, that way. The last mime rooted through his satchel, pulling out one of the hand grenades he'd looted from the Kentucky Klan survivalists. He pulled the pin with his teeth and tossed it back over his shoulder. It landed beneath the Humvee and pitched the vehicle into the air with a whomp. It exploded a second time as the gas tank caught fire. Down there! Sparkle Jones shouted. He pointed at the boathouse. Timmy cut the bike left and braked hard. It careened to a stop, burning rubber. The Reverend Sparkle Jones leaped out of the sidecar and blasted the deadbolt out of the boathouse door. Get her gear on board, Timmy, and get the main doors open. LaFoye, put his Harley into a low slide, the metal sparking on the cobblestones as he drew Sister Mika's magnum and shattered the windshield of another oncoming Humvee with three well-placed shots. It tore past them, plowed into a flimsy wood railing, and flipped over and into the canal, wheels spinning. The thud, thud, thud of machinery grew closer as the Octo battle tanks drew near. We've got maybe two minutes, the Reverend told the last mime. LaFoyne nodded. Holstered his pistol, and ducked into the boathouse. Reverend Sparkle Jones stood watch while Timmy loaded the boat, and LaFoy fired her up. Timmy looked at the big, bright words painted on the stern and bow. God's deliverance, it read. Sparkle Jones grabbed Timmy as he rushed past with a satchel of canned food. Take this. He pushed the map into his hands. But this is how it goes, kid, the Reverend Sparkle Jones said, pulling up his pantyhose. I saw it in a dream. Get on board. He drew his colts. They gleamed in the sun like twin Excaliburs. Reinforcements showed up. Hobgoblins spilled out of trucks, taking up positions. Large metal legs crashed into concrete down the street as mortars thumped to life. A fire-blackened palm tree exploded to their left. The Reverend Sparkle Jones looked at LaFoy. Remember what I told you. LaFoy nodded. But, Timmy said again, Sparkle Jones gripped his shoulders and pushed him forcibly towards the waiting yacht. Go save the world, Timmy Galahad. I have work to do. Timmy scrambled onto the bow. The Reverend unhooked the rope and tossed it to him. LaFoy started backing the boat out into the sunlight. The last time they saw Reverend Sparkle Jones, he was charging the hobgoblin horde, pistols blazing, belting out show tunes at the top of his lungs, his back to the water. When the sunlight caught the highlights of his wig, he looked like an avenging angel in a conservative dress and sensible shoes. They looted a dive shop before entering the Atlantic. Timmy stood watch on the dock while the last mime LaFoy grabbed gear and topped off the fuel. With the sun setting behind them, they turned south towards the grail. Timmy Galahad stretched and yawned. Already? LaFoy nodded. Timmy Galahad sat up in the bed. It was his first bed in a while, and though the rock and pitch of the yacht had been hard to get used to, he'd slept through the night. He grabbed a can of Coke from the refrigerator on his way upstairs. The last mime pointed at a small island. You're sure? He nodded. LaFoy motioned Timmy over to a chart spread out over the small table, then unfolded the Reverend's map. Using a grease pencil, he triangulated their position. He tapped the position with the pencil as if to punctuate it. Okay, Timmy said, what now? The last mime climbed down from the pilot house and stripped down. His pale skin, scarred and pocked, was nearly the color of his grease-painted face. He strapped on a knife and sat down on the gunwale to slide into the air tank and wriggle into his fins. He pulled down the mask, fitted his regulator, and gave Timmy a thumbs up. What do I do? Timmy asked. The last mime shrugged, then tipped over backwards. When Timmy looked over the side, all he saw were bubbles. "'Ted's Lady of the Lake lay on her side at a hundred feet. "'The last mime kicked down to her, "'gave the shipwreck a cursory inspection, "'and carefully entered her main cabin. "'Fortunately, Mrs. Sandowski,' Wife of oil tycoon Theodore Sandowski, who had actually wrecked the yacht intentionally upon hearing of her husband's indiscretions with their pretty young Cuban dog walker, had it engraved, making it easier to find. Ted's holy grail, an oversized coffee mug, really, lay beneath a pile of broken porcelain plates in a cupboard next to the sink. LaFoy grabbed it and returned to the surface with the hope of mankind clenched tightly in one fist. The last mime Lafoye handed the grail to Timmy and climbed into the boat. Above them, the sky twisted and bent. Large spinning disks descended, graying the morning light. I don't know what to do with it, Timmy said. Lafoye watched the saucers come down. Rays shot down from their bellies, hissing into the waters. One of them meandered in their direction, boiling the ocean as it came. And Timmy remembered. Rubbing the grail furiously, he chanted Sister Mika's song. Kiri ilazan, kiri ilazin, kiri ilazan. The grail changed. The pewter peeled away in light. A massive, bright being took form before them. It looked around, scratching itself and stretching. What's up, boys? The being asked. Are you a genie? It laughed. Nope. My name's Bubba. I'm an angel of the Lord. Bubba? Bubba nodded. I guard that there grail now. Used to guard me a garden, but I lost my job on account of some meddling kids. He leaned in, his eyebrows catching fire from the fierceness of his eyes. You a meddling kid? Timmy Galahad took a step back. Uh, no, sir. The last mime LaFoy shook his head as well. Then you might should toss that grail over the side and let me get back to sleep. Took me two thousand years to find this job, and I don't mean to mess it up. Well, Timmy said, actually, we need your help. I'm not a helping angel. I'm a guarding angel. Bubba put his hands on his hips. There's a difference, you know. Timmy Galahad frowned. But the world's in a bad way. Bubba waved him off. I don't guard the world. I guard the grail. The bow of the yacht caught fire. What about now? Timmy Galahad asked. Bubba shook his head. Boat sinks. Grail sinks. I don't see a problem. The last mime LaFoy grabbed up a fire extinguisher and put out the flames. And suddenly, the heat ray cut out and a booming voice from heaven filled the air. Give us the grail, the voice said. Everyone looked up. Give us the grail, Timmy Galahad. Above them, a saucer hovered. A small gray man with an oversized head materialized in the pilot house. He held something like an egg beater with a pistol grip in his hand. LaFoy reached for his M16, and the eggbeater's word to life, evaporating the world's last mime in a puff of yellow smoke. What do you want with it? Timmy asked. A wind whipped up on the water, pitching the boat. Species Archive 730042 Data Retrieval Sector 665 indicates artifact is unacceptable threat level to overkeeper management program. Static hissed. Then Reverend Sparkle Jones's voice filled the sky as well. Go ahead, you alien bastards, do your worst to me. But once Timmy Galahad has the grail, you'll have the holy combat boot of the Lord in your extraterrestrial ass. Then a scream, then silence, then the booming voice. Give us the grail, Timmy Galahad. Bubba looked pissed and impatient. Ask them what they're going to do with it. The voice did not wait for Timmy to repeat the angel's question. The grail must be destroyed. Bubba looked at Timmy Galahad, looked back at the saucers, and popped his knuckles. Now that fella done went and said the wrong thing, he said. Let's get him, boys. The little gray man flew into pieces as Bubba shot through him. Flashes of light like meteors blazed across the sky as angels took form around the globe, blasting through the saucers like lawn darts through Kleenex. It rained metal around the world. Hobgoblins twitched, jerked, and fell over. Part of a flying saucer landing strut hit Timmy Galahad in the head, and he fell over too, dropping the grail back into the Atlantic Ocean, where presumably it still lays. Their work finished. Bubba and the heavenly host went back to sleep. Timmy Galahad looked around. A double-wide trailer sat in the clearing full of unkempt grass, yard gnomes, miniature windmills and old tires. Outbuildings and wrecked cars in various states of rust and repair surrounded the trailer. Pine trees surrounded the clearing. Above, a hot sun blazed in a perfect sky. Timmy climbed the creaking wooden steps onto the deck. A hand painted toilet seat hung near the doorbell. The words, God's on His throne, all's right with the world, stood out on it in gold glitter. The door opened, and little Elvis smiled out at him, waving for him to come in. Timmy went inside. The living room was a hodgepodge of mismatched couches surrounding an empty recliner. The Reverend Sparkle Jones, Sister Mika the Singing Nun, Auntie Anne of Auntie Anne's Jellies and Jams, and the world's last Mime LaFoi stood up as Timmy entered. All of them were dressed to the nines in clean dresses, habits, mime gear, and western gear. Little Elvis Sanchez pushed a bottle of ice-cold yuhu into Timmy's hands. For a long time, no one spoke. They just grinned at him. Finally, Timmy Galahad broke the silence. So, this is how it ends? He looked around at the troop, the company, the band, taking them in one at a time. I told you it was a stupid plan. Somewhere in the back of the trailer, a toilet flushed. An old man with an enormous beard shuffled out. He wore purple velour track pants and a black t-shirt that rode high above his beer gut. The shirt bore a faded psychedelic butterfly and the words Lauren's Rules in flaking letters. Sit down, sit down, the old man said, waving to the couches as he plopped down into the recliner. He looked at Timmy Galahad. You were saying? Everyone sat. Timmy Galahad looked at the old man then shook his head slowly. The Reverend Sparkle Jones cleared his voice. I guess you'd like an explanation. Timmy shrugged. Is there one? The Reverend glanced at the old man. The old man smiled and raised his eyebrows. Sparkle Jones looked at the rest of the grail seekers. They nodded for him to go on. You see, Timmy, he started. Life is full of strange events, unexplainable situations, quirky people, nonsensical problems, and ridiculous solutions that, on the surface, seem meaningless and random and perhaps even silly. Timmy's face went red. You mean like traveling across the country battling vicious alien invaders with a mime, a nun, and a cross-dressing minister in order to find a goddamn coffee mug? Well, the old man said, it seemed cleverer at the time. Timmy glared. Reverend Sparkle went on. And beneath the surface of it all, if you look carefully for it, you'll find meaning. And Timmy interrupted with a snort. And all this time, he said, I thought it was a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. The Reverend's eyebrows shot up. You know Shakespeare? Timmy Galahad's brow furrowed. Shakespeare? No. Macbeth Five, Deathmatch, and Dunsinane. Sheesh. Everyone rolled their eyes except the old man. He chuckled. So, Reverend Sparkle Jones continued, what I'm trying to say is that how a thing ends is not nearly as important as what it means, he shrugged. Life's a journey and all that. He looked over at the old man. how to do? The old man gave Timmy Galahad a long look. Then he took a long drink of his yoo-hoo. Hell if I know. The Lord God Almighty, his own self, said, I've been writing this damn thing forever and I still don't know what it means. You don't? Timmy Galahad asked. The Lord shook his head. Nope. He leaned forward. But I do know how it ends, he said. How does it end? Timmy Galahad asked. It ends like this. First, He heard lapping water and the grind of wood on stone. Second, he heard voices. Timmy Galahad opened his eyes and stared up at a blue sky so bright it hurt. His head throbbed in time with the beating sun. Voices? Of course it's a goddamn sign, Mary Lou, one of the voices said. It must be, another said. You think so, Sue Ellen? Look, Amy Joe. what did Sister Margaret tell us? A pause. Um... Don't worry, girls. You'll win next year if you practice really, really hard. No, you idiot. When she and Father McMurphy left us here. Timmy Galahad shifted, not sure what to do. Um, she said, wait for God's deliverance? Exactly. And what does that say right there? God's deliverance? Amy Joe said. It's a sign, Sue Ellen said. More voices echoed agreement. Of what? Amy Joe asked, in a meek voice. Sue Ellen sighed. Think about it, Amy Joe. We may be the last girls on earth. The Lord sends us this boat so we can get off this goddamned island, find us some boys, and repopulate the world. Timmy heard nervous giggles. He sat up and went to the gunwale. The yacht had drifted into a lagoon and caught on some rocks. A dozen cheerleaders, their St. Catherine's cheer uniforms ripped and torn, exposing lots of sun-tanned, curving skin, stood on the shore near the bow of God's deliverance. Slowly, first one, and then the others, looked up at him. Their cheer captain, Sue Ellen, stepped forward, her big blue eyes growing wide with wonder beneath her sun-bleached hair. Are you the last boy on earth? she asked, biting her lip the rest of the cheer squad blushed and looked down at the sand then looked back up at him he took a moment to meet all of their eyes with his own and smiled reassuringly at them finally he smiled at Sue Ellen you know he said I just might be and he lived happily ever after
1: there you go. Big thank you to Ken Schools. Ken, thank you so much. Do pop over there. I have put a link onto Ken's site this week and next last week, so you can go over and check out Ken's work. Next we have, and it's just came through the tubes and pipes, Morgan has Everything. Morgan.
5: Hello and welcome to this installment of Life, the Universe, and Everything, Reflections in Philosophy, Science, and Science Fiction. I'm Morgan Saleta. Some of you will have noted that this installment is a little bit late. I try, but don't often succeed, in getting these to Tony on a monthly basis. But, well, you know, real life sometimes gets in the way. How Tony produces an episode week in and week out leaves me in awe. So before I begin, I thought I'd just share a bit of my real life with you. As I may have mentioned, I turned forty last month, a big birthday, and there is a correspondingly big change in my life brewing. I'm going to be a father. Fortunately, my partner Kat is younger and in better form than I am, and we went in last week for our first ultrasound, and boy, was it a science fiction moment for me. I had no idea you could see the whole thing in 3D now. I suppose I shouldn't be surprised. But to draw these personal reflections to a close, we are also moving house into a place better suited for a new addition to the family. So the last few weekends have been spent moving things, with the help of friends, and yesterday with the help of some movers for the heavy stuff. Fortunately, I've got Starship Sofa, other podcasts, and an Audible account to keep me entertained. In my last episode, I told you I'd be doing something different with this episode. In my last few installments, I have focused on the theme of science fiction as a mirror, in which human beings and human society are reflected. In this installment and the next one, I'll be focusing on some of the conceptual constructs of science fiction, interstellar arcs, and space habitats. Vast, self-sufficient, enclosed systems supporting thousands, even tens of thousands of people, perhaps even more. This, ladies and gentlemen, is part one of Islands in the Void. The interstellar arc is a common feature of science fiction. In a universe with a speed limit of the speed of light, at least as far as we know, and where even reaching a substantial fraction of that speed would require such colossal amounts of mass and energy that we may never be able to achieve them, the only way to cross the vast interstellar voids may be by means of slow boat, carrying enough crew and equipment to establish a colony on the far-flung shores of a distant planet. There are three basic variations of the interstellar arc, the generation ship, the sleeper ship, and the cedar ship. A generation ship is a giant ship which serves as a self-contained habitat, a planetary biosphere in miniature which houses crew and colonists, together with plants and animals, forests, farms, everything necessary to support generations of starfarers, most of whom would never know any world but the ship. This generation ship would be on a one-way mission, taking hundreds, perhaps even thousands of years to reach its destination. A sleeper ship, on the other hand, is one in which the crew and colonists are maintained in a state of suspended animation, frozen generally, to be awakened upon arrival or in the event of an unforeseen event requiring human intervention. The last type of interstellar arc of which we find frequently in science fiction is the cedar ship, a ship whose purpose is to seed alien worlds with life, in a kind of directed panspermia. As an aside, the panspermia hypothesis suggests that life is spread throughout the universe by microorganisms hitching rides in lumps of rock or ice, or even in dust blown by solar winds and interstellar radiation. At its simplest, the idea was first suggested by the 5th century Greek philosopher Anaxagoras and found its modern form in the speculations of 19th century scientists Hermann von Helmholtz and Svante Arherius. I'm sure I'll have the opportunity to discuss this idea in further detail in future episodes. But to return to the topic at hand, some cedar ships in science fiction also use bio or nanotechnologies to grow entire lifeforms, even entire ecosystems, on arrival at a suitable planet. In fact, such ships might grow lifeforms completely adapted to the host world, as in the book Hole 03 by Greg Baer, which I will discuss further on. Before continuing with some examples of interstellar arcs from science fiction, let's first examine some serious science speculation about such a ship. Is such a ship possible? The answer is maybe, possibly, even perhaps probably. In fact, it is even possible to imagine one using technology available today, to propel it across the vast, lonely parsecs between Earth and a hypothetical analog planet. Some of you out there will undoubtedly have heard of the Orion Project. Project Orion, whose founders and proponents included Freeman Dyson and Arthur C. Clarke, imagined a starship propelled by pulsed nuclear explosions. In essence, the ship would launch nuclear explosives behind it. The ship, protected by a massive shield and shock absorbers, would be propelled forward by the explosions. For a fascinating discussion of the idea and live footage of a model being propelled by conventional explosives, look up the film To Mars by A-bomb on YouTube. A similar drive, but using nuclear fusion, and thus much cleaner, was explored by the British Planetary Society's Project Daedalus, which is currently being reimagined by the Tau Ceti Foundation and the Planetary Society under the name Project Icarus. The technology necessary for an interstellar arc is fantastic, complex, but not necessarily unattainable. But it is not only the question of technology which poses problem, but social and psychological ones too, especially for a generation ship. On a mission that might take hundreds if not thousands of years, how would the ship's culture and people evolve? Clearly the ability to maintain and operate the ship would be of paramount importance as well as knowledge of the mission and the means necessary to accomplish it. On a more mundane level, food would have to be produced, and all the ecosystem functions we planet dwellers take for granted, perhaps, as global warming shows us, to our peril, all these functions, nutrient cycling, air and water purification, and so on, would need to be maintained, either biologically or mechanically, or perhaps by a combination of the two. One of the more common ideas, using a hollowed-out asteroid or harnessing a comet to form the ship, is also one of the oldest ideas. J.D. Bernal, pioneer of X-ray crystallography and molecular genetics, speculated on using asteroids as space colonies and comets as a means of traveling to other stars in his 1929 essay, The World, the Flesh, and the Devil. A hollowed-out asteroid serving as a generation ship, probably powered by an Orion drive, is featured in the original Star Trek episode, The World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky, which first aired on November 8th in 1968. In this excerpt, the crew of the Enterprise realize the asteroid, on a collision course with the Federation world Darren V, is a spaceship, which they later learn is named Yonata. Full
6: sensor probe, Mr. Spock.
7: Typical asteroid chemically... But it is not orbiting it is pursuing an independent course through this solar system how could that be
6: unless it's power a spaceship it is under power captain and
7: correcting for all gravitational stresses source of power atomic very archaic leaving a trail of debris and hard radiation let's check off Plot the course of the asteroid vessel. Hi, sir. Asteroid has an outer shell, which is hollow. It surrounds an independent inner core, which has a breathable atmosphere. Sensors read no life forms. Then it must be on automatic
6: controls. And the passengers, or builders, are dead.
5: Of course, they find that the interior is actually inhabited by a society which is led by the beautiful High Priestess Nadira. And things have gone wrong. The people of Unata do not know they are living on a spaceship. This idea is probably taken from Robert A. Heinlein's 1963 novel, Orphans of the Sky, which combines two earlier works from the 1940s, about which I will speak shortly. In this excerpt of The World is Hollow, Kirk and Spock meet an old man who knows the secret.
6: You are not of Yonada. No, we're from outside your world. Where is outside? Up there. Outside, up there, everywhere. So they say also. it is forbidden why is it forbidden I am not sure but things are not as they teach us for the world is hollow and I have touched the sky ah!
5: After the old man tells his story, he screams and collapses, and Spock and Kirk realize that he has been killed by an implanted punishment device. This being Star Trek, the Enterprise crew sets things right in the end and returns the Unada to its correct course, which will see the colonists on their new world in about a year's time. The possibilities offered to science fiction writers by all the things that could go wrong, terribly wrong, on an interstellar arc, are numerous and have been explored by many. While moving house over the last couple of weeks, I took the opportunity to listen to two audiobooks, both available through Audible.com, featuring interstellar arcs, Robert A. Heinlein's 1963, Orphans of the Sky, and Greg Baer's 2010 novel, Whole Zero Three. Orphans of the Sky combines two of Heinlein's earlier works for astounding stories, Universe, published in May 1941, and the sequel, Common Sense, published in October of the same year. The story's protagonist, Hugh Hoyland, has grown up on the ship. He and his fellow villagers know no other world, and believe it is their entire universe. His society is ruled by officers and scientists, who ritually maintain some of the ship's functions and pass on religious stories which hint at the origin of the ship. Hugh's village is in the lower decks, and the upper decks are all controlled by muties, mutants who are also descendants of the ship's mutineers from a time almost beyond memory. One day, on an excursion to the upper decks, he was taken prisoner by the highly intelligent, two-headed mutie, Joe Jim, and thus begins his voyage of discovery, since Joe Jim knows the location of the control room and the ship's veranda, which offers a view of the stars. Interestingly, Heinlein's story is in many ways an analogy of the scientific revolution and the conflict between the Church's cosmology and the nascent Copernican worldview, and there are many references to Galileo's conflict with the Church, including his alleged remark upon condemnation, and yet it moves. In Heinlein's story, of course, it is the ship and not the earth that moves, but the words resonate deeply as Hoyland utters them as he is on trial for heresy. The first part of the novel, Universe, was dramatized by the NBC radio show Dimension X in 1951, which you can download from the Internet archives at www.archive.org. In this excerpt, Joe Jim shows Hugh Hoyland the stars and tells him what he has learned about the ship.
6: How do you know this is the main control? See these instruments? Using them, the Navigator many hundreds of years ago actually steered the ship on its voyage. I don't understand. I didn't suppose you would. Your people have been so steeped in superstition and ignorance that the whole concept has lost its meaning. Sit in that chair. Don't be frightened. Sit down. Very well. Look up. What do you see? Nothing but a huge shield. Watch it for one moment, Mr. Hoyland. You are going to see something that few of us have ever been privileged to witness. Something so dazzling that you may find it hard to accept at first. But it is there. It is a reality. And ultimately, you must accept it. What are you doing? I'm dimming the lights. Don't be frightened. Keep your eyes focused on the shield above us. Ready? Watch. The shield! It's sliding back! Go stop it. George. well, what am I seeing? The universe, Mr. Harlan. The universe, in all its beauty. The stars, the planets, the sun, the moon, and the constellations. This is your heritage, Mr. Hoyland heritage. You've been too stupid to see. But it can't be. The ship is the universe. There is nothing but the ship. Ah, but there it is. You see it before your eyes, spread out like a canopy of glory. You still deny it? Answer me, Mr. Hoyland. Do you deny it? They lied. They lied to us. Good. Why did you close the shield? You will see it again if you're not afraid. I'm not afraid. Many times. I've shown this to others of your people whom we captured, and though they saw it before their very eyes, they would not believe it. Tell me about it. Tell me about the ship, about the universe. What are these things? How did this come about? Many thousands of years ago, on a planet like those you've just seen, a planet called Earth, a scientist named Jordan decided to build a ship that would carry men from one planet to another. For many years, Jordan and thousands of others studied and planned, and when they were finished, they built the ship. A ship so large that it had to be assembled in its own orbit beyond the place called the Moon. Sixty years it took them to construct. And when it was
5: finished, a whole new science
6: had been conceived. Then the trip
5: was begun. For those wishing to listen to the full novel, the narration by Eric Michael Summerer is excellent and can be downloaded at Audible. As I mentioned earlier, the other interstellar arc book I listened to was Hole Zero Three by Greg Bear. It is the story of a seed ship Equipped with bio generators and feeding off a comet on its voyage during which something has gone terribly, horrifyingly wrong. It is up to Teacher, who awakes, confused from dream time, with bits of memory, to find himself being relentlessly pursued by monsters. He and his fellow survivors must figure out what has gone wrong and try to fix it. While not overwhelming, the story is exciting and at times frightening, and the narration by Dan John Miller really lends drama and depth to the story and characters. All this is well and good. The idea of an interstellar arc is plausible and has been seriously fleshed out by futurists, scientists, and science fiction writers. But what, I hear some of you out there asking, would possibly motivate a people, a planet, a world, to undertake such a challenging, not to mention staggeringly costly, enterprise... One such answer comes from one of the earliest science fiction stories to feature a sort of interstellar arc, in this case interplanetary, the 1933 novel When Worlds Collide, co-authored by Philip Wiley and Edwin Balmer. In this story, a pair of rogue planets enter the solar system, and the destruction of the Earth is imminent. A group of scientists desperately work to develop spacecraft to ferry human and animal colonists to one of the worlds, which will enter into a stable orbit around the sun. The book was adapted into a film of the same name in 1951 and partially inspired the 1998 film Deep Impact. And then, of course, there is a more humorous explanation. Douglas Adams' tongue-in-cheek suggestion that it might be a great way to get rid of some truly annoying people, as with the Golga-Frenchian B. Ark. In this excerpt of the BBC Radio 4's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy.
0: No. I think we've materialised inside another spaceship. More problems. Well, we'll see. (coughs) Checks. atmosphere's okay. Let's get out and have a look. (coughs) Ford? Yeah? What about the others? Arthur, you'll have to learn it's a convention in all space-travelling species that if you have to ditch someone, you know, a friend... And there's nothing you can do. You just let it be. You don't talk about them, okay? What, really? And then we get blind drunk about them later. I think there must be something terribly wrong with the universe, you know. I think there must be something terribly wrong with this shit. Yes, it looks like a mausoleum. That's it. Yes, you're right. The The place is full of sarcophagi as far as the eye can see. Wow. What's so great about dead people? Well, I don't know. Let's have a look. Here, here. There's a plaque on this one. What does it say? Golga Frincham, Ark Fleet Ship B, Hold 7 Telephone sanitizer Second Class And a serial number Telephone sanitizer? A dead telephone sanitizer? Best kind What's he doing here? Not a lot No, but I mean, why? Good God This one's a dead hairdresser And this one here's an advertising account executive Are these really coffins?
5: They're terribly cold
6: All right! Hold it right there!
5: brilliant. I'm sure all of us could come up with a list of people we'd like to put into an arc to collide with another planet. This, ladies and gentlemen, has been another installment of Life, the Universe, and Everything, Reflections on Philosophy, Science, and Science Fiction. The next installment will be part two of Islands in the Void, Habitats in Space. I'm Morgan Saletta, signing out.
1: I haven't actually got the links just yet but we will get them if anyone's that keen to get them straight away the they will I'll put them up when as soon as Morgan sends them over like I say just this just come through and he's off to bed because he lives in Australia and I'm doing this in the morning it's his night time Finally we have Michael Swanicks how to run a con
8: Hello this is Darga, and I'm Surplus and we are here to teach you how, how to, to run, run a con, con. P.T. Barnum famously observed that there's a sucker born every minute. But doesn't this also imply that every minute a sucker dies? And if said sucker is indeed dead, doesn't that mean that his social utility is over? Not necessarily. America, being a particularly religious country, an entrepreneur can always make a good living with a stack of expensive-looking Bibles, a hand-embossing machine, and a copy of last week's death notices. One simply goes to the grieving widow's door with a personalized Bible and asks for the deceased. An emotional scene ensues in which it develops that A. The fellow is no more. B. He had, mere days before his death, ordered a deluxe Bible with his name embossed on the cover. And C. The delivery is strictly COD. $200, please. An easy sale. Particularly when the deceased was rather a bad sort, whose unexpected last-minute conversion comes as something of a relief. The comfort the survivors thus receive is beyond price.
7: Death is indeed a particularly traumatic stage of life for most people, which is why so many confidence artists have specialized in parting the veil that separates the mundane world from the afterlife, so that departed loved ones may offer reassurance to their survivors. In fact, these grifters created an
8: entire pseudo-religious movement. Spiritualism, as the movement came to be known, began with Kate and Margaret Fox two mischievous young women who convinced their older sister Leah that they were able to communicate with spirits, which expressed themselves by making rapping noises. <laughs> Leah immediately declared herself their manager and took
7: their act on the road. Their seances attracted such luminaries as William Cullen Bryant, James Fenimore Cooper, Horace Greeley, and even Sojourner Truth. For many years, they
8: prospered. However... In 1888, forty years after their adventure began, Margaret came to believe that her powers were diabolical. Paradoxically, she responded to this by publicly demonstrating that they were also fraudulent. The rapping noises were made by cracking a joint in her big toe. Both Mary and Kate were shunned by their friends and followers. Within five years, they had both died paupers. Yet in their day, the Fox sisters lived well and took in many a psychic investigator, including Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) Not that Doyle was
7: that hard to defraud. He was also taken in by the Cottingley Fairies hoax, photographs taken by two young cousins in 1917, which supposedly showed themselves playing with sprites and winged gnomes. Looked at today, it's hard to see how anybody could have been fooled,
8: for the creatures were clearly illustrations cut from picture books. Elsie Wright and Francis Griffiths were not swindlers, however, but merely children having a giggle. They were very careful not to accept money for the use of their photos, though it would have been the easiest thing in the world to do. For
7: that matter, most spiritualists today refuse to charge a fee. They simply make their services available to the bereft and extremely rich, out of the goodness of their hearts. If the grateful widow or widower chooses to make a love-offering afterwards, well, who would be
8: loutish enough to turn it down? Not I. In the wake of the Fox Sisters, literally hundreds of imitators arose, so many that rapping noises no longer sufficed to make one's seances stand out. Innovation was required, horns floated in the air, streams of glowing ectoplasm were produced from various bodily orifices, (laughs) and godly attired spirits emerged from special cabinets. The press soon
7: learned that entertaining articles could be generated by debunking spiritualists, which, because their flummery
8: was so transparent, was easy to do. So, in the spirit of Henry David Thoreau, who famously cried, Simplify, simplify, they gave up their props, wraps, and trapdoor cabinets, and today claim only to channel the spirits. So long as they keep their answers vague, there's nothing for the debunkers to disprove. Simple lies are always the best. This is Surplus. And I'm Dagger,
7: teaching you how, how to, to run, run a, a con. con. <laughs> Thoreau was a bit of a con man himself, you know. He only lived in that cabin for two years, and then it was straight back to the flesh parts of Concord. I heard that he once set Walden Woods on fire. Do you suppose he'd taken out an insurance policy <laughs> on the place?
1: <laughs> and there you go. that is Starship Survivors 185. I do hope you enjoyed. Please... Vote for Larry. Do you know what I mean? Get that Larry. Just get him into that kind of bracket so people can hear his voice to realise how eckin' good he is. Do you know what I mean? He is just stunning. What else is happening? Don't please, if you want to come along to the TV and film script workshop, please do that. Pop over the front of the website, sign up there. Mark's given us a load of kind of bump of like course material. There is just so much, and I'm so looking forward to this myself. I mean, a little, you know, because I did the blood and chrome. You know what I mean? I wrote those words. So, do pop over if you want to do the TV and film script workshop. There's still time to sign up for the early bird pricing ticket, but you have to be quick. Right, that's it. I will see you next week. And I think actually, next week we find out it's like the Hugos this weekend where the kind of the announcement made, all exciting stuff. Let's see what happens. Until then, I would just like to see Good night from me. Will
0: our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of... ...Social Sofa. A Vatilation Procedure in the Shade...
6: Shuttle set for wash. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.